We've been walking through a series in the book of Habakkuk, persevering in faith during troubled times. We're in chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We come upon one of the most significant verses in the Old Testament in verse 4 about the righteous living by faith, which is the message of the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The righteous will live by their faith. Read with me. This is God's word. And the Lord answered me, and he said to write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all the nations, he collects as his own all the peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him! Who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain from his house, for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the work, woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts. That peoples labor merely for fire. That nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drinks and to pour out your wrath and to make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your circumcision the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when it makes its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth keep silence before him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, this is your word. 
We have come to you this morning. Oh, to lift our hearts to you afresh, to know you, to love you, to worship you, to be with you, to hear from you. Would you speak into our lives and into our hearts this morning? Speak to us afresh. Father, we would not gather more information. We long to be changed. We long to be like Jesus. We long for our lives to belong to you more fully. So in the midst of it, will you work and change us? For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Habakkuk has been lamenting the moral and spiritual decline in the life of Israel since the death of King Josiah. There had been something of a revival. He had tasted the good things that could be. And and since Josiah's death, there's been a decline morally and spiritually. And this has disturbed Habakkuk. He longs for God to renew his people. And so... In verses 1 to 4 of the first chapter, he's pleading with God to do that, to to restore his people. Make things right. Let there be justice. But then in chapter 1, in verses 5 to 11, God responds. And as God does in his own will, in his own way, in his own time, he does not give the answer that Habakkuk is longing for. God responds and he tells him it is not the time of renewal. It is not the time of revival. It is a time for judgment. It's a time of discipline. It's a time of purging in the life of my people. So I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans as a judgment. And us and he is announcing to Habakkuk the Babylonian exile. Uh, They're going to go into exile for 70 years. So Babylon is going to sweep across the nation and take them into exile and subdue them for the next number of decades. This is hard news for Habakkuk. That would be hard news for anybody. We compared it to, you know, we've been praying for revival in America, right? We've been asking, you know, we had some good days, you know, where there was a a Judeo-Christian ascendancy, some Christian values in our country. We long for them to return, and so we pray. And we ask God to do it again, to revive his people. What if he were to answer that prayer by raising up another judgment, another nation in judgment? That for a time, we will lose our ascendancy. For a time, we will be in exile. That that is what he is doing. And this is the news that he has received. It is difficult news. It's not what he wants to hear. So in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, we see this beautiful picture of him where he says, I'm going to take my stand at my watch post. I'm going to climb into the tower under the rampart. I'm going to look out and wait and see what God will say to me. What word do you have? How long is this going to go on? Right? And that's the question that is on the table. It's the question of chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And it's the, it's the question of verse 17 at the end of chapter 1. Is he then to go on keeping his, to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? How, how long are they going to be in power? How long are you going to let them, the, the wicked, subdue the righteous? How long are you going to let these people have their way and wicked, in a sense, win the wickedness? And God's answer this morning in the text that is before us is that in turn, the Babylonians will be judged. 
that this is not their ultimate victory. That though in the course of history, in the unfolding of God's purposes and his plans, as he's moving toward the revelation of his Messiah in the New Testament, in the course of the history of Israel, this is what takes place next. But Babylon will not ultimately win. They will not stand in the long run. That my judgment will come around to them. And all will be made right in the end. God intends to use them to judge and discipline his people. But they will be accountable for all of their sin. And he will bring them to account. So though for a time the wicked may swallow the righteous, God's answer is no. It will not go on forever. It will not be like this forever. There is a day coming when things will be made right. And so in the course of our passage, you read it, it's a bit uh, full and convoluted. You know, this, this statement that he has, he's speaking to, to, uh, to Habakkuk about what he's going to do now in judgment on the Babylonians. And that's what's unfolding in this passage. There are five woes that we read, right? If you noticed as we hit them, five woes in 6, 9, 12, 15, 19. Those are the woes of judgment upon Babylon that in turn they will be judged. Some 70 or more years down the road it will come, but it is as ordained as the fact that they will rise up and overrun Israel in the time being, so their judgment too is ordained, and it will come, and these five woes he pronounces upon them. But in this passage, there are five woes and four blessings. Let me just kind of unpack them real quickly and notice them, and then we'll go to applying them in, uh, in our own lives. So the five woes we see in verses 6 to 8 is the first one. And he says, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, For how long? Woe to the one who heaps up plunder, who despoils others, who takes what is not theirs, right? Who conquers and and pulls into himself. In the end of verse 7, it says, you will become the spoil for others. Woe to those who live this way, because in the end, you will be the spoil of others. Babylon will end up being the spoil of those who come after, the Persians, who will become spoil for the Greeks who will become spoiled for the Romans, right? But for now, as he says, you who have heaped up for yourselves, the day is coming when you will be the plunder. In verses 9 to 11, he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who sets his nest on high. You know, woe to the one who builds his life by taking the lives of others from taking others. In verse 10, he says, You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many people, so you have forfeited your life. Right? Woe to the one who lives this way, because you will forfeit your own life in the process. Verses 12 and 13. He says, Woe to him who builds a house or a town with blood and founds a city with iniquity. Woe to the one who builds their cities, who builds their empires by taking other cities and others Uh, possessions and land and goods and plundering them. Woe to the one who through evil builds his empire. In verse 13, he says, it will come to fire. It will come to nothing. It will not last. This is not of the Lord, and it will not last. Verse 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbor 
drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to abuse them. Woe to the one who makes others drink the cup of your wrath and abuse. And the image is in a cup that is they're stored up uh, the wrath and the anger or the abuse. And he says, and you make others drink it so that you can't abuse them. But this image then is picked up at the end of that section in verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and it will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The cup that you are pouring out of your wrath upon God's people, that cup you will drink from God's own hand. It will come around to you. Verses 18 and 19, he says, Woe to the one who worships a God of his own making, any God but the true God. Woe to the one who creates gods for himself, gods in his own image, gods of his own hands, which is the way the world is. Whether it's with the stock market or in a thousand other ways, they're building their own God with their own hands. And they live for themselves. And God pronounces the fullness of his judgment upon Babylon on their evil. It's not just words. He says their, their destruction is ordained. Their day is coming. And it will not be forever. While he is pronouncing these woes upon Babylon, there are a few things, a few nuggets, a few promises and blessings that that come out in the midst of his declaration. And I want us to notice them because intermixed there, they struck me, these, these promises, these blessings, which in some ways should bring fear in the hearts of the Babylonians as he says them. At the same time, for those who live by faith, which is where we're going with all of this, those who live by faith, they actually come as promises and blessings. And the first one is that promise, that word in verse 4, that the righteous should live by his faith. Now in the immediate context, he's talking about Israel. And he's talking about the fact that you're going to have to walk by faith and not by sight over the next many decades. Because you're, you're, you're going to see the Babylonians rise up and be in the ascendancy and have power. And during this period of time, he says, the righteous are going to have to live by faith in a world that is puffed up and full of pride and full of arrogance, and at times have the ascendancy, and we see it all over the world and all through history, where the wicked prosper, and evil has its time. And he says, in a world puffed up with this pride and arrogance, the righteous will live by his faith. They will trust in God in the midst of their pain. And if you miss the last couple of weeks, you can go back and see about all of that of, of believing and knowing who God is, even in the midst of these kinds of trying times where it is hard to see his hand, hard to see his power, hard to understand how this fits into the grand scheme of things, hard to understand how this is going to work out, hard to understand why we suffer while the wicked prosper. And when it's hard to understand, he says, the righteous will live by his faith. He's encouraging his people that in times of upheaval, evil may seem to be winning. Your faith will be tested. But God is on his throne. And he is still in control. And those who keep their faith will live. 
Faith must persevere when it's tested. We talked about the soils and the hard soil and the good soil and the two middle soils and the middle soils of Jesus' parable are the faith that is tested. It says that it sprung up for a moment, but when testing came, whether it was the rising of the sun of suffering or whether it was the, the weeds choking out the pleasures and cares of this world, it did not endure. It did not persevere. It didn't make it, but there was one good soil that through the sun and through the temptation and through the suffering and through whatever it was knew and believed that God is who he said he is. And they trust him and walk with him. In Hebrews 11.39, we know that Hebrews 11 is that chapter of what we call the hall of faith where it lists all these people who walk by faith throughout Old Testament history, and it reaches the end. And some of them, they says they moved mountains and shut the mouths of lions, and they had victories, and they did this. And he says, and some of them were sawn in half and stoned to death and lived as paupers and lived on the run. And you had all of these folks with different experiences under the life of faith, and then it ends, though, saying this, that all of these guys, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised in this life. They're commended for their faith. They persevered to the end. They were God's people. But the promise was that which waited. It wasn't something that they got to experience in this life. We don't live for the fulfillment of all of his promises now. We do not live for the answers to all of our prayers now. Habakkuk got an answer to his prayer. It wasn't the one that he wanted. We don't live for God to do what we want him to do now. We don't live for the answers the way we want them. We live in faith despite and in the middle of our troubles and our disappointments. We live by faith in the midst of a world going crazy. We live by faith in the midst of a world where evil does have its day. Faith stands in the truth of who God is. Like, like Job before him, though he slay me, yet my hope is in him. Though he takes me right now, I have no other hope. To whom shall I go? Who else has the words of life? So in verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, Right now it may seem like evil and wickedness. When Babylon rises up and sweeps across the southern kingdom and defeats Israel and takes them into captivity, it will seem like Babylon and evil and wickedness cover the earth like the waters of the sea. It may seem that way. It is hard to see the rhyme or the reason. But the righteous live by their faith. And a verse like this should bring fear to the hearts of the wicked of the Babylonians, that the day is coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, will cover the earth, which means it will sweep them out of the way. It should bring fear into their hearts if the God of Israel were to rise up and sweep them out and cover the earth. And while it should bring fear to them, for those who live by faith, that's the day we are looking for. That's the day we are longing for. That's the day we can't wait for the Lord to rise up and for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord of Israel to rise up and sweep the earth to reign in power. This is going to happen. 
It's going to happen when verse 16 happens in the ultimate sense. He says to those who are rebellion against God now and living in their rebellion and their evil, he says, you have had your fill of shame instead of glory, but drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and it will come around to you. Your day of drinking the cup will come. Evil will be judged and subdued. Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16, we read this. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. He is saying you are to take my cup and it will be poured out and the nations will be made to drink it. The day of their accounting will come. And all who are in rebellion against God should fear that day. But all who live by faith long for that day. Because we live in the hope and the knowledge of verse 20. That the Lord is in fact in his holy temple. And he calls the earth to keep its silence before him. When it says the Lord is in his holy temple, we know that in heaven the holy temple and the throne of God are merged. That the holy temple that, the, that was made on earth was nothing but a replica of, that, of the presence of God, of heaven where God is, which is the same place that he reigns from. The place of his holy presence, the place of his worship, the place of his power, the place where he reigns over the circle of the earth. We see it brought together in Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see and his eyelids test. The children of men. The Lord is in his temple. He's on his throne. And he sees. None of this gets by him. They think they're getting away with it. They think that it's going to be okay. They think they mistake his patience for their safety. But his eyes see. And the day of testing will come. So let us turn and say, so what? How do we apply it? What does it mean for me? And it means a couple of things directly, I think, and profoundly for us. And for me in this text, at least what I feel like the Lord is bringing from me to you, this is one of those, this is one of those messages that, uh, you know, it brings some weight to it. There's a warning here, and there's a promise in here. And we need to hear them both. And we need to hear them solidly and clearly. So friends, let me say it as clearly and as gently as I can, that if you are living in rebellion against God, do not mistake his patience for weakness. Do not mistake his patience and his delay for safety. Because the Lord will come, and the day will come. You may be allowed to live in your pride for a time, you may be allowed to defy God for a time. In his patience, he waits. You can live for yourself and you may prosper, but at 16 is always true. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and it will come around to you. There is an accounting that is for all of us. We think, oh, good, uh, counting will come to Babylon or will come to, you know, name your foes in our world today. 
But that day comes for us all. The scripture tells us we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And the cup is in his hand. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh from his flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. The Lord will not be mocked. He will not be the one standing shamed on that day. Let us not mistake his patience for weakness. And though judgment is not yet fallen, it will come. Second Peter 3, 9-11 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Some are saying he's slow. Where is he? How can you let this happen? Why is it like this? We don't understand. But the Lord is not slow. His timing is perfect. His day is coming. It, in the fullness of his time, in his wisdom, in his way, it will come. So be patient. Because he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens and the earth will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. The earth and all of its works that are done in it will be exposed. The Lord is patient. He gives you time to repent. But what the scripture says again and again and we can't avoid it. There are churches that won't tell you this. <laughs> there are churches that will not speak of God's judgment or his wrath. There are churches that, 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 that think you won't come back if you, if you tell them this. But woe to us if we don't tell you. Woe to us if we don't speak the truth of the whole counsel of God. Woe to us if we don't tell you that the time of his patience is not forever. The day of his patience will end and the day of judgment will come. And not wishing you to perish, he is calling you to faith, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. And so let us return to verse 4 for a moment, that verse that really stands at the heart of the Old Testament and at the center of Scripture. It is the message from beginning to end that the righteous will live by his faith. It's probably the most important verse in the Old Testament, or at least one of them. It's a summary of the gospel in a sentence. It's a summary of the New Testament. The righteous will live by his faith. The New Testament makes it clear the righteous will live by his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The life that God offers by faith in Jesus. The life is in Jesus. 1 John 5, it tells us this is the testimony. This is what God has said. This you can... You know, so let it be written, so let it be done. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, but the life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe, who have faith in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have life. Ultimately, for all of us, the cup will come around to us. God will bring things into account. The cup of his wrath, the image is that though he is waiting, the cup of his wrath is stored up. It is filling up to the brim and the day will come when it will be poured out. And there is a sense in which there's a cup for each one of us. There's a cup for me. 
A cup where, where my sin and my rebellion and, and my failure and my lack of love and, and is filling a cup. The wages of sin is death. And the day will come where I would be made to drink that cup. The cup of his wrath. The cup of his judgment. There's a cup for all of us. And so, here it is, my friends. We can drink that cup ourselves. When that day comes, we could put our faith in a Savior who would drink that cup for us, who would drink your cup. Imagine your cup. Put in it what you know belongs there. He says, you can drink it yourself. We're on that day. He says, you can put your faith in a Savior who will drink the cup for us, who would drink the cup of God's wrath against sin in our place. But who would drink this cup? Right? You remember the night in the garden when Jesus has been betrayed? Judas is gone and he takes the rest and he's in the garden. And he knows the cross is the next day. And he's there praying and pleading with God. It says he sweat blood. You know, that he wrestled with God like Habakkuk here is wrestling with God about his will and what he is doing and his struggle with it. We remember Jesus is wrestling with God that night before the crucifixion. And what is his prayer? What does he want? He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You ever stop and say, what cup is that exactly? What cup is Jesus worried about drinking? He really doesn't want to drink. Why is he asking God that if it's possible, don't make me drink it? I mean, Jesus, who is fully God, is also fully human. And in his humanness, he stands before the, the full knowledge that God has called him, that he is the son of God, has come and taken humanity. And he has done it. He knows tomorrow on the cross, he has come to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. And in his humanity, he wrestles with it. He trembles before the idea. Who would not tremble before drinking the idea of drinking this cup, of drinking your own cup that is stored for us? And so Jesus trembles. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus came to drink the cup of wrath. For all of those who will put their faith and their trust in him. And to our everlasting relief and joy, Jesus yield his will to the saving purposes of God. It was not, he says, if it's possible, Father, let this cup pass. If there's another way to save our people, if there's another way to bring the church in, if there's another way to cover their sins, if there's another way, please, Father, let the cup pass. And God answered the question in the negative. There's no other way. You must drink it. You must drink it for them. You must go. Isaiah 51, 22 says this. Thus the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, he says, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you will drink no more. 
And you need to understand, though, we need to understand, praise be to God who pleads the cause of his people. Praise be to God that he has made a way to take that cup from our hand. But we need to understand that if he takes it from your hand, he puts it in the hand of Jesus. There's nowhere else for it to go. Either you will drink it or he will drink it for you. There is a cup. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you give him your cup. And he will drink it for you. Down to its very dregs. He bore on the cross in his own body the full wrath of God against the sin of his people. For all those who would put their faith in him, their sin is paid for. The wrath has been poured out. He drank it to its dregs. For those who will put their trust in him, who will believe that what he did, he did for you. For all those who will put their faith in him, who will receive him as Lord and Savior, my friends, there are only two ways to live. One is in unbelief, in rebellion and unbelief, and saying, I'll drink that cup myself. The only other way to live is by faith in the one who drank the cup to its very dregs on the cross, putting your faith and your trust in him. If you live by faith in the Lord Jesus, that cup will never come around to you. It will never come around to you because Jesus already drank it to its dregs on the cross. It will never come around. Jesus said, let this cup passed from me, but because it didn't, it can pass from you. If you put your faith and you put the cup in his hand, trusting that what he did, he did for you. And then the day of his coming is a day of hope. As I said, for those who live by faith, and the scripture says it over and over again, all of these things, that when, when we walk by faith and not by sight, the righteous living by their faith, in these days, the day of the, of the cup coming around is not a day of fear. It's a day of hope. It's a day of the Lord's return. It's a day when his, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like a, the waters of the sea when he returns and establishes his reign in righteousness. Friends, verse 20 is true. The Lord is in his holy temple. And let all the earth keep silence before him. And when it says to keep silence before him for the wicked, it means there is no defense. He will stop up the mouths of the wicked. He will stop up the mouths of those who are in rebellion. There is no defense. Let all the earth keep silence before the God who judges rightly. But for those who live by their faith, This silence, the Lord is in his holy temple, is good news. And let all the earth keep silence before him. It's the silence of faith, the silence of peace, the absence of fear, and the longing for his coming. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who indeed reigns, that you are seated in your holy temple, We also thank you that you are a God who pleads the cause of his people and that you have sent your own son to drink the cup for us. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who have not by faith 
trusted in Christ and handed the cup over, trusting that what he did, he did for them. Father, would you work in us this morning? If there are any here who have not, they would put their faith and their trust in Christ and enter into the joy of that day. Deliver us from fear and deliver us into the hope of an eternal life. Father, we thank you that you love us and you loved us enough that in the person of your son, you drank the full cup to its dregs of the wrath that was reserved for us that we might be set free from sin and guilt before you. We thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.